We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you two new people who I've just come across my path through one of our previous guests and where we were learning about Dow Labs. Now, Sabria Tanbarkin and Paul Cronenborg are based in India, and they have founded this incredible organization called Braille Without Borders and Kantari. And we look forward to uh, hearing more about their story and about the work that they're doing. Welcome, guys. <laughs> Hi. So, First of all, let's get a little bit of background here so folks can understand. Obviously, you're in India. Your names don't sound very Indian. So there's obviously some global nomad stuff happening there that we uh, can learn a little bit about. How did you end up where you are? What's your little story of background there before we get into the work that you're doing now? A little story is very difficult to, to do because... Um, uh, we made a huge detour from, uh, or I at least made a huge detour from Germany to Tibet. Uh, there I met Paul. Then we stayed in Tibet for many years. <laughs> then we came here to uh, the south of India and now we are stuck here. And uh, this is a beautiful place. So, <laughs> so you ran into each other. Tell me about where, how did you two meet and sort of what's the story behind there? Yeah, um, I studied. I had studied uh, Tibetology, and uh, I went to Tibet to do some research. But also because I have created a braille system for my own use, because I'm blind myself, and I wanted to be able to read and write in braille in Tibetan braille. And uh, somebody told me, "Why don't you go to Tibet and uh, show this braille system to the Tibetan people there? Because there are lots of blind people." Maybe they can have some kind of use of it. So I went to Tibet on my own in 97. And uh, in one of the backpacker lodges, I met Paul. And I told him that I wanted to start a school for the blind. And uh, he was one of the very, very few foreigners who didn't think that I was completely insane when I told him that I wanted to, do, to start something in Tibet. And he said, yeah, why, why not um, letting me know what you're doing and maybe I can help you in one or the other way. So I did. I uh, messaged him or I, I called him a couple of months later and uh, he was at a, yeah, at a working place that gave him too much stress or too much uh, overworking hours. And I said, look, uh, I'm going back to Tibet. Uh, I have my papers ready. I will start a school for the blind in Tibet. And uh, probably I will be there for five years. It became many more years uh, in the end. But uh, I thought I'm going to be there for five years. Then I would go to India and maybe then to Africa. And he didn't say anything. And I said, hey, look, you don't have to cry or something. Just wish me good luck. And he said, I come with you. So he quit his job. And uh, yeah, two days or three days later, we sat in the plane to Nepal. And from Nepal, we went to Tibet. And ever since we are running projects together. So first school for the blind, then uh, we started a training center for the blind, uh, for blind adults. Then uh, we went to India and started a 
yeah, an institute for social visionaries from all around the world, people who had dreams like us and people who are always told, don't dream so big, just stay on the ground, don't grab for the stars. And, uh, and people who have overcome adversity, just like us, and who have this inner drive to make the world a better place. And um, that's where we are right now. So this is Kantari. This is the institute where we are right now in the middle of the jungle, right next to a beautiful lake. And as we uh, can hear from the lake, you also are surrounded by, oh, I don't know if they're called peepers there, but certainly uh, some very vocal frogs. So um, we'll yes. be enjoying them yes. in the background. I love that story, though. I mean, it's really, it's a very classic, I mean, not the outcome, the particular outcome, but it's a classic global nomad story and that we come across travelers on our journeys who, you know, we, we learn that we have shared vision or we want to help them in their vision. And it seems like there's always this serendipity and this opportunity to just seize it and go make a difference. And you two have really clearly done that and, and harnessed your own dreams, but really made a difference for others as well in that process. Paul, can you tell a little bit about sort of how did you end up in that space and what drove you to making that decision? Well, I've, um, I grew up in the Netherlands and I was lucky to be at the right place at the right time in 1997 when I met Sabri in Tibet. Uh, I ended up in Tibet by coincidence. Uh, but before that, I was working in several, I'm an engineer by training, I did four different studies. And in between, I was traveling and worked on several projects in Africa, Eastern Europe, uh, worked with projects with disabled people, worked uh, on building a school in Lesotho. And um, so when Sabria was telling me her, her idea of starting this uh, school for the blind or this preparatory school for the blind in Tibet, I was uh, hooked. And uh, it was very easy for me to... Uh, to decide to quit my job, but I think it's the best decision I've ever made. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's a kind of luck, but also something that I wanted to do for a long time. And uh, we ended up in the right place, right time. Yeah, that's true. The people that I'm sure that uh, are doing are really benefiting from the work that you're doing are probably very appreciative of the fact that you're you did end up in that space and with the right person. So it's really it's quite beautiful. So can you tell, explain a little bit about what Kantari is? Yeah, Kantari is, um, first of all, I would like to talk about the name. Kantari is actually a very small, but very, very spicy chili. And uh, this chili grows wild in the backyards of Kerala. So it's not planted. It's planted by the birds, actually. It's a bird's eye chili. And, and the Kantari is not only spicy, but it's also healthy. So for us, it's the perfect symbol for somebody who has fire in the belly, and who has the guts and the spice to challenge the status quo, to ask critical questions, but not only talk uh, talks critically or ask critically uh, critical questions, but also uh, is able to do something and do something healthy, do something for society. And uh, since not everybody likes spice, Kantari is not everybody's darling, but we always feel that, well, uh, everybody's darling never changes really the world. So you need to hurt a little bit. You need to pinch a little bit in order to be able to change to something positive. Uh, and therefore, we feel that the Kantari is, is a great, great uh, symbol for what we feel is a social change maker. Also, the fact that a Kantari grows in uh, the backyards of Kerala. 
So it's basically at the margins of society. And we are especially looking at people from the margins of society, people who have overcome adversity, people where, where nobody actually thinks or expects great things from or, or, um, or of. And uh, we believe that exactly those people have the power, those people who have overcome adversity, who have gone through the, through, uh, through the struggles of life, but who have overcome ex um, um, uh, these adversities and who have seen that they can take strength out of limitations, out of war, out of difficulties that they have seen and faced. We believe that they are the actual people who can make a difference. It's not us who is telling them what to do. You know, we don't want them to do whatever we feel. We want them to do what they intrinsically feel and uh, what, um, what they dream about and the society that they dream about. They have to, um, to instill this. So um, therefore, we have a very, very, yeah, our very own idea of what it means to make social different or make, a social, make social change possible. I love that. It's really, I mean, just the, the empowerment piece of it's not coming in and saying this is how to do things. It's giving people the gift of the power to do it themselves. And, and that really is clear in, in, in the work that you're doing. I'm curious, you, you, you mentioned that a lot of the, you know, you're obviously working with the blind, but there's also India has a very unique system that many from the outside do not, are not familiar with. And then Tibet is a whole nother dynamic. Have you found that in the work that you do, your, your blindness provides a window or an opportunity to engage with that system in a different way than those who are with sight? Is there more of an allowance to come in and create change? Or... Yeah. First of all, we are uh, here in Kantari. We are not only working with blind people. Actually, unfortunately, we don't have so many blind people oh, okay. uh, in the course. We have some blind people, but not so many. Of course, in Tibet, that was mainly focused on blind people. And yes, when whenever we are working with marginalized, I do feel that I have a huge advantage to get into people's minds, um, especially when it comes to. What does it mean to be discriminated? What does it mean not to be part of society? What does it mean not to be mainstream? Mm -hmm. Is that actually something bad not to be mainstream? I don't think so. I think actually marginalized, being marginalized is not as bad as it sounds, right? Because you have the possibility to look at um, what really matters from a completely different perspective. And, and this is something that I can give to people who maybe have this feeling, hey, I'm outsourced or I'm sidelined or I feel not part of the mainstream society. And then I say, hey, um, be okay with it. Uh, embrace it. Accept it. Um, understand that actually this might give you a springboard for something much, much bigger. And uh, this is something that we experienced in Tibet. So in Tibet, for, uh, for us, it was very, very clear that uh, our kids that grew up with us in, in this preparatory school, we wanted them to not only accept blindness, but actually embrace it and to understand that blindness can give a lot, uh, that there is a beauty 
of blindness, that they actually can understand that blindness means focus, that they are not distracted by Hollywood and Bollywood, um, that they can really focus on what's really, really important. Uh, we also made them understand that they, their blindness can lead them to better communication, to more structured communication, more clear communication, also to problem solving and to imagination and all these beautiful things basically lead them to to becoming very successful in what they really want to do most people and i i see this with a lot of sighted people or a lot of so-called mainstream or normal people they have this huge disadvantage that people expect something from them their parents expect them to be engineers or doctors or this or that and uh, what what then happens they don't really live their own dream once we are, however, in the margins, once, once we are kicked out to the margins, nobody is expecting anything from us. We, we have nothing to lose but our dignity. And this gives us a huge, huge advantage because whatever we do can be seen or can be viewed as a plus. And, uh, and um, this, this freedom of doing or of living our lives and living our dreams um, uh, and living changes that we want to see in the world uh, is something that I think is our advantage. Our, when I say our, those from the margins, and that doesn't matter whether you're blind, uh, whether you are a woman who has experienced domestic violence um, and you have overcome it. Uh, whether you are a street child and you have overcome it, whether you were a sex worker and you um, you you don't feel a victim anymore, whether you were in wars, it doesn't really matter. Um, the, what matters is that you find the strength in the that you don't see it as victimhood anymore, that you don't see yourself as a victim anymore, but that you actually embrace all your limitations because, after all. Limitations are the mother of innovation or invention. And um, this is something that we found out in Tibet. And we wanted to, um, uh, to, to hand over to any other persons from the margins of society. And it works very well. I'm with you 100%. I, I absolutely love your perspective. And I think that we all could use a little bit of that. Sometimes we we take that for granted. And I think it's really a, a, a beautiful message for all of us to remember. And sometimes that, you know, those social pressures really do limit our ability to see beyond, see outside of that box and to see the possibility. I know Paul considered himself a social change engineer, and you talk about imagineering, and there's, there's these different pieces of that it's really looking at looking beyond and taking that innovation of thought and possibility. What are those things that you have found in your journey in your of developing Cantati that have really surprised you in a special way that uh, that you would hope others would would really embrace? I think that um, Sabri already mentioned it's the the change from within. Usually, I'll share a little bit of a backstory how where from where we came. In Tibet, it's it's common that blind children are being locked away in dark rooms and they are left to die literally. And that was a big shock when Sabria met us in 1997 when she was there first. But luckily, on that same trip, she met Tenzin. And Tenzin's a little boy. He's uh, is about uh, at that time eight years old, and he smiled and he said to Sabria, "Oh, you're blind. I'm blind too." 
And that was a shock for Sabria because she was wondering how come that this boy is so confident and is so proud of being blind. So she asked him, what do you do? And then he came with uh, the answer. He said, well, I'm the yak herder in the village. So basically, this is what, what our work is based upon. And he had a task. And if you have a task, you got value. Mm. If you have value, usually you're respected. Mm-hmm. If you're respected, you get dignity. And only then self-confidence can come. So a lot of people never made it to the point of dignity. And that's why they have to overcompensate with an expensive car, big house, big mouth, <laughs> trophy <laughs> wife, trophy husband, <laughs> or, or whatnot, uh, to cover up basically a lack of self-confidence and, well, basically a lack of dignity. And so Sabri immediately knew what to do. And she said, well, we're going to start a place where we can bring these students together, or these, these young children and, you know, so that they have a place that they see that they're not alone and they're going to gain skills. And with these skills, they are respected. They're going to get to that level of dignity. And with that, they go back into society and integrate themselves. And this is exactly what, what happened. So we, we went through this process. But in, in, in the beginning, we had a big, big um, a challenge because most of these students that came, they were between like six and, and, and 10 years old when we started. And most of them, they came from, well, being disregarded by society completely. And our biggest challenge at that point was how can we give hope for these kids, uh, you know, looking forward. And uh, I have a simple um, uh, slogan for life. Life is what you're happy getting up for. And uh, that is linked to the step that we took to give these kids hope for the future. We started a dream factory. And we asked these children, we said, okay, what's, what is it that you dream of doing? And don't worry if you can or cannot do it. What do you want? Right? If, if I have to becomes I want to, that's where the magic begins. So we started this dream factory. And after one week, we, we asked our, our students, we asked them, what, what do you want? And there's one boy, Norbu, who was also eight at the time. And he said, I want to become a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, he's blind. He can't see. So um, we could have destroyed that dream right there and then. But that's, that's, nobody has a right, in my opinion, nobody has a right to destroy anyone's dreams. Mm-hmm. If only we would believe in dreams of people, we would not be in the shit we're in today, I would say. <laughs> so we said, wonderful. And two years afterwards, he speaks Tibetan, Chinese, English. He walks with a cane. He, he serves on the internet and all that. Because he's blind, we asked him again with a new group of students that came in. We asked him about the status of his dream. And then he said, uh, he smiled again. He said, well, now I realize um, because it's because I, I can't see, maybe it's not so good to become or safe to become a taxi driver. But I can set up a taxi company and run it. Yeah. 10 years old. And a couple of <laughs> years after, he became interested in making cheese. And then he was the first blind person ever in Tibet to fly. Flew all the way to Holland. Uh, learn how to make cheese, came back, started our cheese factory. And now, now this is about 20 years ago. So now he runs his own medical uh, massage clinic and a restaurant. And he's successful for a very simple reason, because he does something that he wants to do. And this is what we, what, what our training is based upon as well. We work with people that are intrinsically driven to make the difference that they want to see. And then, of course, motivation is, is of course, the big factor. And if somebody is intrinsically driven, then motivation is not a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. because that's what they're going to live for. And Sabrina and I, we have found, well, in what we do here at Kantari as, as a, well, a goal for life as such. And we hope that we can do this for a long, long time. Uh, it, it, I'm just, I'm sort of, um, I'm taken with that story. It's really quite beautiful. And I think of so many that we experience and we make these assumptions when we interact with with individuals as we are traveling, especially when we come from places that we are the haves rather than the have-nots. And we make assumptions about people's limitations. And 
when you give people the opportunity to to really harness their intrinsic interest, as you speak, of to create that change, mm. it's really quite powerful. And that's that's such a beautiful story. And I'm sure you have so many more of those from the years that you've been doing this. So where are you now in terms of growth? Are you working in just in Kerala? And I'm sure there's plenty of people just there. But what is what does your organization look like these days? And how do how do people get involved if they want to support your organization? Okay, so so growth is this thing that is always being asked. When do you start a second campus or a third campus or a fourth campus? Well, we have a different um, uh, feeling of growth, and it's it's an organic growth. So every year we train a group of people here. It's it's not that many. It's about 20, 25 people, and they go back and they change their communities from within. So they have come across a social issue that they want to address and they go home and they address that. So in the last 11 years or 12 years, we trained 226 people from 48 countries. And right now there's about 130 plus organizations that are active and on a daily basis, we several thousand people uh, for whom, you know, that, who are based on the, or who are living on the margins of society. And this is how we grow. So we grow as Kantari, we don't grow. The organization here, the campus has been the same size as it was from day one, and it will remain the same size, but we train people every year and they will make that impact. And hopefully they're going to train other people that then will make an impact within their communities uh, moving forward. So um, we've seen that this, this growth thing in, in, in general, it's um, when, when organizations become very large and big, they become bureaucratic. Um, it's very hard to change and adapt. It often leads to, um, well, ego fights in, uh, in, in the organization. There's a lot of issues that are coming up. And we, we feel that in this way, it's, it's, a, it's a better way to, to do this in a natural way. So if people want to help us, there's several ways they can help us. Uh, we have a 501c3 in the US through which, of course, donations, because what we do costs money. Uh, we don't make money with this. It costs us money. And we, uh, every person that we select gets a scholarship. And from the scholarship, we, you know, they get the full seven months training at Kantari with board and lodging. And then there's another five months when they go home and they get startup mentorship support from Kantari graduates from their region. Of course, it's not only monetary help that people can give. We are looking for people that could mentor Kantari graduates if they would like to support them, if they have built up a, their own organizations and want to share. But mostly it's kind of a listening ear um, and coach somebody through. Uh, but of course, only people that have done and started their own organizations, because a lot of people, if they're just academics, not necessarily they have the practical experiences. And that's something that we focus on very, uh, very much. And of course, people could volunteer. Uh, they're a volunteer um, either here or for Kantari graduates. And one very important part is to spread the news that we exist uh, we would like to reach more people. And because our target group, uh, most of them are, are based or are living in the margins of society, it's not necessary that they have the access to mainstream media and they don't know about Kantari. So whoever hears this, if they can spread the news within their families, relatives, uh, people that are traveling, and if people that are traveling coming across people that just started their NGOs or organizations and they are still looking for uh, skills and, and tools to run their organizations, they could apply to Kantari.org. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of different ways that you are growing, but it's more growing organically through your graduates and through the community that you're developing there and building other, building other enthusiasts who want to support it. So I, I think uh, 
you you understate your your ability to grow. I think it's uh, you're growing very wisely. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good way. Well, but better wisely than too fast and break. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Have there been? I mean, I'm sure you know operating an organization and in Kentucky and also in Tibet must have had it, some of its challenges along the way in just setting up an organization. What have been some of the mm. things that you've experienced there and some challenges or yeah. opportunities, I guess, is another way to, to put it. Yeah. See, um, one big, big uh, problem is always when people have big dreams and others, maybe from goodwill or maybe because of their own fears, try to discourage them or try to not discourage them but try to say hey don't go in uh, or uh, don't become a failure or uh, don't go further because uh, you will not make it so that was for us that was um, the biggest hurdle in the very very beginning we had these big dreams and most people said you are just nuts you're crazy and because we had both of us and because i came from a family that was crazy enough to actually support what I was doing, I had this feeling, okay, maybe I should not listen to everyone. I should listen to the dreamers first. And once my dream is mature enough, then I can also face the so-called naysayers or the, the people who are well-meaning but actually afraid of their own skin or of, of being endangered by themselves. And this is something that, uh, that I always tell uh, youngsters who say, well, I have this dream, but my parents are telling me not to do because this and this and this can happen, right? Yeah, if you don't die, why don't you try? That's what Paul always says. I think so too. Uh, I do believe that we should much more go for our dreams because the future is unknown to all of us. You know, we, we pretend that we have everything under control. We pretend that we know exactly where we are and what we do in 10 years from now. But now through, for example, COVID, we have experienced something completely new. From one month to the next things can completely turn upside One down. Yeah. One day to the next, can, things can uh, completely uh, turn upside down. And I do feel we need to understand that the future is unknown to us. So why do we have to have this overly control? Why don't we really go for what we really want to have, uh, want to do and go for our dream? And in this way, Kantari is really a dream factory or a, a, a dream production center where people can come with their dreams. And interestingly enough, their dreams are normally a little bit small, a little bit conventional. And once they come out here, the dreams become much, much bigger, much more interesting. And therefore, and this sounds maybe contradictive, but there's, uh, therefore it's much, much more realizable because people are suddenly alarmed and suddenly alert and they say hey this is amazing we want to be part of this and this is exactly what we found out as well when we had these big dreams in the very beginning so for example starting the first school for the blind you always find naysayers but you also find a few people who dream big and who say wow i want to be part of this right um, when we said we want to start a global institute for dreamers in in the south of india 
again, some people said, I want to be part of this. So don't dream too small. I always try to explain this to people with a light tower. If you have a light tower in front of you and the obstacles between you and the light tower are so big that you cannot see the light tower anymore, you won't go towards the light tower. You won't want to reach it because the obstacles are just too big. The obstacles, uh, the, the light tower always has to be bigger than the biggest obstacle. And only then uh, you would go for it and you have the drive to go and for direction, it. Yeah. Uh, and the direction, of course, too. Yeah, no, no, it's it, it's so true. And and I think it, you know, it, it's one of those things of, of looking at uh, limitations and looking beyond our limitations and and having a... a um, a purpose that drives us. And uh, yes. I'm so thankful that you have taken that purpose and just run with it. And it's just, a, it's a beautiful thing. And I want to make sure uh, that folks can find you. We're actually running short on time here. So I want to make sure folks can find you and follow your organization, contribute if they can in whatever way. Or the other thing is you've also got, and we haven't even had a chance to touch on, but you also have uh, some documentaries and a book out that. Uh, that folks can learn a little bit more about your story. For those of you who are driving, please don't try to write any of this down. Don't worry. It will be in the show notes and you'll be able to find all of this by just either going to globalnomadhacks.com website or and where all of the episodes are there as well as the show notes or anywhere that you are streaming your podcast. So do not worry. The information is there and you will be able to find them. If you could just let us know, Paul and Sabria, what is the best, if people have one effort that they want to make in order to contribute the best way, what would be your best recommendation? I would say they go to the main website, www.kantari.org. And there is under media, there's some documentaries, uh, there's lots of other stuff to look at. There are dream speeches of our participants where they share in 10 minutes very inspiring speeches, what is they want to do. And there's also a link for, for where people could donate uh, either in the US or elsewhere. Fabulous. Thank you. I will be doing that myself. And I look forward to uh, encouraging all of our global nomads out there to contribute in some way, because I think what you're doing is just very powerful. And I think that also if whether you can go to India or to contribute in some way to this organization, hopefully you inspire others to do similar types of work wherever they happen to roam. And also to take up that inspiring serendipitous interaction with someone that is doing something inspiring. If you want to actually join forces, that's always a great opportunity to really have an impact on the world. So thank you to, for doing just that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This has been really a pleasure. I look forward to learning more about your organization. And uh, thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. And I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And uh, always appreciate a rating and review. It helps others find us. And if you do, please let us know so we can share a little love back. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to be with you today. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now.